Bibles with me, please. As we return back to Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9. I seek to cover verses 16 through 28 today, Lord willing. Under a sermon title, The Once Shed Blood of Christ. The Once Shed Blood of Christ. Hebrews chapter 9, and I'm going to read verses 11 through 28 and would ask that you follow along in your copies of God's Word. Hear the Word of the Lord. But Christ being come, a high priest of good things to come, by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, He entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. For if the blood of bulls and of goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifieth to the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works, to serve the living God. And for this cause, He is the mediator of the New Testament, that by means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the First Testament, they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. For where a testament is, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. For a testament is of force after men are dead. Otherwise, it is of no strength at all while the testator liveth. Whereupon neither the first testament was dedicated or confirmed without blood. For when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and of goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop, and sprinkled both the book and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the New Testament, which God hath enjoined unto you. Moreover, he sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry. And almost all things are by the law purged with blood, and without the shedding of blood is no remission. It was therefore necessary that the patterns or copies of things in heaven in the heavens should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ is not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are the figures of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor yet that he should offer himself often as the high priest entereth into the holy place every year with blood of others. For then must he often have suffered since the foundation of the world, but now once in the end of the world hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And as it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this the judgment, so Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many, and unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. And may the Lord bless the reading and the hearing of his precious word. The concept of blood and the significance of blood is an important thing that we see very on in the Bible. In fact, is interwoven all throughout the redemptive story. Very early on in the garden, there was blood shed because it had to be something that would account for the seriousness of the disobedience that our first parents committed in the garden. Subsequently, shortly after that, we see Abel shedding blood in his worship of God. Subsequently, after that, we see Noah erecting an altar. And then all throughout the patriarchs, we see again that blood was a vital instrument, a significant element in the covenant relationship between man and God. 
Here's this first century Jewish community that had been converted out of Judaism. Understanding that significance of blood all throughout history, they were being challenged, weren't they, with a whole new paradigm shift about the use of blood. Not the blood of bulls and goats now are you to trust and rely upon for being accepted, to be loved, to be forgiven by God. For those things he's taught up until this point cannot make you perfect. That's why you have to come again year after year after year. And he's teaching them that it's the blood of Jesus Christ. It's, the, it's by the blood, the sacrificial blood of Jesus that you are forgiven. And do you remember what we had to address in verse 15 a couple weeks ago? We had to address what would have been an obvious question in their minds as first century Jews who had for centuries replied, uh, um, they, 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 they um, depended upon, sorry, they depended upon, did they not, the blood of bulls and goats. They, they depended upon, they trusted in, in many ways, the blood of these sacrificial systems in order to make them right with God. And they would have been thinking to themselves, if these things do not make us clean and pure and accepted by God, then what about all of our descendants? What about uh, all of those who have went before us who are, have already passed on? Jesus hadn't appeared yet. They would have been thinking, we're very thankful in and of ourselves that the Messiah has come, who we've trusted upon, we believed upon His gospel, that it's by His sacrificial work our sins are forgiven and we put our hope in that. And do you recall what we learned in verse 15? Just by way of recap, the writer there, he addressed what would have been this obvious question and he reassured them, didn't he? He reassured them that Jesus' high priestly sacrifice was the mean by which God would forgive the sins of their ancestors. But not only that, also it was by the blood of Jesus Christ that their ancestors would receive the promise of the internal inheritance. There is not one person, Jew or Gentile, that is in heaven, that did not get there, we learned in verse 15, but by the merits and the high priestly work of Jesus Christ. Well, you could see how that's a paradigm shift for them. Wow, his blood was that significant even during that covenant economy? Even during that covenant time? Yes, it was. Yes, it was significant. It made Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all of those who were, as verse 15 describes them, the called or the elect, it made them the heirs of Jesus Christ, just like all of those who lived during the first century and you and I today are made heirs of Jesus. They looked by faith past the shadows and the types contained in the sacrificial system. And by saving faith, they laid hold of the very substance of the things that were promised in Jeremiah 31 we read this morning in the second in the promised better covenant described as the new covenant. By faith, those Old Testament saints, they laid hold of those things. Do you remember what the substance? Do you remember what the promised blessings were we read this morning in Jeremiah 31? We, were, we saw it in, Jer- in Hebrews 8 as he repeated it. The substance that those Old Testament saints by faith laid hold of that was made possible by the blood of Jesus was that God would write His law upon their hearts. They wouldn't just be going through the motions. He would be their God and they would be His people. They intimately knew Him. They had a real salvific knowledge of God. And He reassured them that because of the work of the Messiah, not the blood of bulls and goats, but the work of the promised Messiah, those who had faith, He promised them, I will never remember your sins anymore. All of that we saw in verse 15 was made possible by the blood of this one sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And so, we have to conclude as we're understanding covenant, sacrifice, blood, priesthood, sanctuary, etc., etc. We have to conclude from verse 15 and going further into the argumentation today, beginning with verse 16 all the way to 28, we have to conclude this. That this new covenant 
this covenant that we've learned up until this point, that Jesus made with the Father in eternity past, often referred to as the covenant of grace because it's not dependent upon their law keeping. It's dependent entirely upon the righteousness and the obedience of Jesus Christ. It is free grace. It's a covenant of grace called second, called better, called new by Jeremiah. We have to conclude from verse 15 that it was in operation throughout all of redemptive history. But at the same time, it is independent from and it is different from the first and the faulty and the weak covenant. And so I often represent this to you all in, a, in, the, in, the, in, in two lines, beginning with Genesis 3.15, all the way through the Bible, one line, I like to put it on the top, that's the covenant of grace, that's the second, that's this better covenant that was established in eternity past, made actualized in time, space, and history, promised to Adam and Eve initially, and perpetually being further and further revealed until, as he says today, the end of the world, or in Hebrews 1, the last days, this age in which we live, by which we see, yes, it's through Jesus, Jesus and His blood. He's the Messiah. That's the way. That's the path. Now Gentiles come in. All of that we see was operative throughout the Old Testament. Their sins were forgiven by the blood of Jesus, who's the mediator of this covenant of grace. Amen? He's the mediator of it. And that's His heirs. This, of course, makes two practical applications. One is, as we've noticed before, leading into chapter, verse 16 today, is it shifts our paradigm and our thinking as well as the New Testament church. The church isn't, it didn't just begin on the day of Pentecost. The heirs of Jesus Christ, those who belong to Him, who are covered by His blood, forgiven by His blood, only getting to heaven by His blood, are all of those Old Testament called ones in verse 15. Wow! The church is so much more than just Pentecost forward. Amen? It's Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, you and I. And don't you know Peter, he's a rascal. He's in the church. He'll be at the Feast of the Lamb. Can't wait to talk to David. Amen. This is the church of Jesus Christ. Get the big picture now. Because that's what he did in verse 15. He just dropped a bomb right there and just shifted not only their paradigms, but for us as well. It shifts our paradigm and our thinking of the church also. Now beginning in verse 16, our text today. Now beginning in verse 16, he goes on to further spell out the scope and the importance of Christ's blood and its sacrifice. And he continues to do this all the way into chapter 10, verse 14, where he concludes this focused, concentrated um, teaching on Christ's blood when he concludes in chapter 10, verse 14, for by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. And so from here unto 10, 14, he's focusing on the blood, the significance of the blood. Now, what he's going to do in verse 16, watch this, because in the Greek, it's, it's, it's pretty complicated, and some of our English translations do better than others. But notice that he's been talking about covenant, 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 up until this point, okay? Diatheke, that's the, that's the Greek word that's been translated in the New Testament, either as testament or covenant. The authorized version, and many of the other English versions, they translate it both ways, okay? The modern ones tended more translated as covenant. But notice the shift here, what goes on in verses 15 to 16, watch. For this cause, he's the mediator of the New Testament, Diatheke there, it's translated in the English as testament. That is the idea and that is the concept of a covenant. Okay, so it could probably, perhaps, a better translation would be covenant. For he, for this is the cause, he's the mediator of the new covenant that by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the first covenant, they which are called might receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. Now what he does which again demonstrates his knowledge of the Greek language. We noticed this in our introductory message to Hebrews. Um, a lot of the grammarians 
And the Greek scholars noticed that whoever it is, most believe it's the Apostle Paul, that was inspired to write Hebrews, had a very fluent working knowledge of Greek. And so right here, he can shift in his Greek language to go from diatheke, which is to Jews, the Greek translation of what a covenant is, to now use the word diatheke in the sense that the Roman Greco culture used it, which meant a last will and a testament. Right? So when the Jews would use the Greek word that's equivalent to the Hebrew word of covenant, it was the, they would say diatheke, but when a Roman Greco person would use it, they didn't have connected with it all these heavy connotations of a covenant. It was more considered or understood as a last will and testament, which is more familiar to us today. We, we deal with a lot of that, right? And he does that in verse 16. And if you don't see that, it's kind of confusing. Look what he does in 16. For where a testament is, the Atheke, and there he's using it, not in a covenantal sense, he's using it in a last will and testament sense. Well, Pastor Doug, how do you know he's doing that? Well, here's one simple reason why. Just to establish before we unpack the significance of what 16 and 17 has for us. For where a testament is, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. Well, that fits fine if you want to, like some theologians do. They want to say that verse 16, diatheke should be covenant. That works fine if you're talking about the covenant uh, that Jesus mediates because Jesus died. So if you want to read it for where a covenant is, there must also be the necessity of the death of the testament. Well, now you've got a problem with some of the Old Testament covenants. Do you remember who Conan sent it down and made a covenant with Abraham? Who did it? God did. Well, did it require God to die? And what you see, you see, that's that's not only on the surface doesn't work, but also trying to make that word diatheke mean covenant in the covenantal sense as it's being used all throughout chapter nine, it throws things off. No, what he's doing, I believe, is what he's doing is he's capitalizing on what he's bringing up in verse fifteen. Notice what he ends verse fifteen with: an inheritance. He's bringing up the concept of a promised inheritance. Well, how do you get an inheritance? You get an inheritance through a will, right? An established, decreed testament and last will. An inheritance requires a testator, one who drafts up and and brings and writes the will, and it requires heirs who receive the inheritance. And so seeing it that way helps us to make a little bit more sense of what of the shift that he makes in his Greek language here in verse 16. And so I'm proposing to you, he's helping us better understand the significance of Christ's blood and what Christ did, and in a sense, the new covenant, here by making this shift. You like how I'm using my hand? I, I drive a stick shift sometimes. He, he's making this shift, talking with my hands here. Um, to help us better see this, all right? So let's draw out what he wants us to see. For where a last will and testament is, there must also of necessity be the death of a testator. For where a testament or a last will is a force after uh, men are dead, otherwise it is of no strength at all, while the testator lives. Now by employing this word, he's utilizing the concept, as I've tried to demonstrate, of the last will and testament to capitalize on the significance of Jesus' blood, which was necessary required for them to receive the substance as heirs, as inheritors of the new covenant. Now in verses 16 and 17, the inspired writer desires us to understand that these new and these gracious covenant blessings ought to be considered in a way, he's using this as a symbolic thing to teach us, they ought to be considered these blessings as particles and clauses of a last will and testament. You see that? So if you look at the covenant of grace in that sense, it's a covenant, the authentic between God and the Father. But to Christ and his heirs, it's a last will and testament that contains in it Particles and clauses that are guaranteed to be given to the benefactors. I think that that really helps kind of show the picture of Christ as a mediator and also him as having the title of a testator and our place in that as those who are heirs and inheritors. Listen how uh, John Gill captures this. He says, quote, The covenant of grace, the second, this better new covenant, 
is properly considered a covenant to Christ by the Father and a testament or last will to us as his people. Concerning, what does it concern, this last will and testament? To give them both grace and glory. It consists, here's, the, here's why I said particles and clauses. It consists of many gifts and legacies. In it, Christ is made heir of all things and his people are made joint heirs with him. They are given him uh, as his portion and they have all things pertaining to life and godliness bequeathed or given unto them. Even all spiritual blessings, Hebrews 8, 10 through 13, the witnesses of the Father, the witnesses of this last will and testament, he says, are the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, and the seal of this testament is the blood of Christ and the grace of the Spirit. I like how he says this. It's registered in the Scriptures by holy men who were inspired, being the notaries, and it is unalterable and immutable. So what we're clearly seeing here in verses 16 and 17 is that it's stressing the fact that Jesus as a testator, he is the one who's going to define what is in this will, what is in this new covenant constitution, that he's going to give all those who are his heirs, the inheritors of it, And he is willing as the testator to give the death that's required. And that's really the flow and the theme of the entire chapter. His death, the blood. The the aspect of the nuance about the covenant and and, and Christ being a testator in the testament, that's just a sideline little nugget, right? That helps us better get the big picture. But the main theme here, let's let's keep on track of the main theme, is his blood. And that's clearly what the author is trying to draw out for us in 16 and 17. He says in verse 17, Otherwise it is no strength at all while the testator liveth. He had to die. He had to die. Now, I think at this point, it, it helps us to just pause and to remember the sufferings of Jesus in His death. The Savior, our testator, the one who bequeaths to us these blessings, not only to the old covenant saints who believe the called ones, but us as well. And it calls into question not just his sufferings, how about many times in Scripture also that we as the heirs are also called to suffer. Not to earn the inheritance, but being heirs of Christ, we as well suffer. Of course, the focus in 16 and 17 is on the death and the blood of Christ as the testator, the covenant mediator. But consider a moment with me, us as his heirs, us who receive this inheritance. We're described in Romans 8 17 as his heirs, the heirs of God, the co heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings. So, according to this verse, we share in the sufferings of Christ now so that we can share in his glory later. And I think that oftentimes as his heirs, we undervalue the sufferings that we go through or that we must go through in preparation for our inheritance. I want to be very clear. I am not in any way, shape or form saying that this is what makes us an heir. I just want us to connect that coming with this beautiful gift as a, a benefactor of the blessings of the new covenant, this covenant of grace through the last will and testament of Jesus Christ, the testator, it's not all roses. It's not all easy is what I'm trying to say. The reason I feel this is necessary is because in our culture today, we associate heirship and benefactors with reward and easy. Well, it is a reward. What Christ gives us is a reward. But it's not a check of like, you know, a million dollars or a great grand real estate, you know, uh, plot of land that now you're given free in charge and you're just living high on the hog the rest of your life. Because unfortunately, in our culture, that's how we kind of understand inheritance. Oh, man, you know, uh, you know, hey, dad, when you, you know, when, when you pass away, you know, do I get that? You know, that that favorite gun I admire of yours or, you know, that favorite fishing pole or whatever the thing is, right? Whatever dad has, the, the children are looking like, yeah, I can't wait to get that. But they're not understanding that come that what may come with that is some suffering, is some suffering. Maybe you don't see what all dad goes through, right, to, to give that to you. But with that inheritance is going to come some suffering. And so I, 
I thought here it's a good place for us just to pause and say, Amen and amen. We're heirs of Christ. But friends, let's remember as well that becoming his heirs doesn't mean that it comes without suffering. To help us put a compass on why we must suffer, consider this passage from 1 Peter chapter 1 where we learn something regarding our sufferings, okay? Which ties into verse 28 later on in a second coming. 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7. You know this verse? Though now for a season, if need be, you're in heaviness through manifold temptations, that the trial of your faith, you're the heir of Christ, you've been given this inheritance, being much more precious than of gold that perishes, though it be tried with fire, listen, might be found in the praise and the honor and the glory at the appearing, the second coming of Jesus Christ. So we see here that as heirs, our sufferings are especially designed to praise and to honor and to glory the Lord Jesus Christ. And what ought to be a real comfort for us in light of Jeremiah 31 we read this morning is that over in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 5, we're reminded we're kept in these sufferings as heirs. We are kept by the power of God through faith and to salvation, ready to be revealed at the last time, ready to be revealed at his second company, uh, coming. So back to verse 16 and 17. We ought to recall that our relationship as its heirs and benefactors of the last will and testament of Jesus Christ was indeed secured by the death of the testator, Jesus. But it doesn't come without difficulties and trials. But friends, let us remember especially for any of you that are here this week, and as of heir of Christ, you have a guaranteed salvation granted to you by His righteousness, and you're walking through a very difficult season in your life. Remember Romans 8.18. I think this went out in a group text this week to the men in the church. I reckon that the sufferings of this present time, Paul said, are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us at that last time in His second coming. Well, verses 15 and 17, moving on here, they wonderfully convey the theme of an anticipated reception of the inheritance that Jesus has secured, not only for the believers who lived under the old covenant types and shadows, but also for us who see more clearly with the redemptive scheme of God through the person and work of Jesus Christ. We have as His heir salvation, but dear friends, we are anticipating, are we not? that second coming. He has purchased it for us. Now what he does here after verses 15 and 17, he goes back to, he shifts again in his writing. He picks up on the theme of the inheritance in verse 15. He explains and brings up the whole concept of a testator and heirs in verses 16 and 17. And now in verses 18 and 22, he goes back to focus upon the old covenant bloody sacrificial worship that he had there. So that's what he's going to do here. He's already already been doing this throughout the letter. And the inspired admirer once again draws our attention to this theme. Now in particular, he takes them back to the significance notice of the role of blood in the sacrifices. And he does so by saying it was required to establish, he says in verse 18, um, or that is to confirm... Uh, the, the Old Covenant. The Old Covenant, not a last will and testament, but now coming back to the Athike, a covenant, he's coming back to that concept and he goes, blood was so important there that it couldn't even be established without blood. God requires blood in these ordinances, in these covenants. This is a, a, a fleshing out of what's contained in Exodus 24. In Exodus 24, we have the, you could say, establishment or the confirming of the first covenant. They had to bring these sacrificial animals to do it. Now, if someone were to read in Exodus 24, and someone was to be an observant student, they would notice here in our passage that there's more things that are mentioned being done than in Exodus 24. He says here, for instance, if you look at your Bibles back in 19, Moses had spoken every word, That is, every precept of the written word to all the people according to the law. And he took the blood of calves and of goats with water and with scarlet wool and hyssop. And he sprinkled both the book, 
That's not mentioned in Exodus 24. And all the people. Some may wrongly conclude here that there's an error in our Bibles because this inspired writer, whoever's doing this, either, either A, it was inserted, and so we can't trust it, right? It wasn't all those extra details shouldn't be there. Something's wrong with our Bible. Or he really didn't have a copy of Exodus, and so he's wrong. Friends, what's being done here in verses 18 through 20 is that the writer is providing for us simply fuller revelation and description of what occurred on that day in Exodus 24. Because must we, in our bibliology, our belief about the Bible, our trust in the Scriptures, must we be reminded that in 2 Peter 1.21, that the writers who penned the New Testament spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. So verses 18 to 20 have no error in them. What they have for us is a fuller description of what occurred in Exodus 24. And in what he's doing here is he's simply teaching them this truth. That just as the Mosaic Covenant was dedicated and confirmed with blood, so also this covenant, the covenant of grace, this new covenant, it is confirmed by blood. However, and not very surprisingly to us, it required the blood of something much more right? Something much more special, something much more pure, something much more important. And as we've been learning, it's the blood of Jesus. That's no surprise to us. Of course, it requires something much more than blood of bulls and goats. Notice in verses 21 and 22, moreover, he sprinkled with the blood, both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry, and almost all things, all things are purged by the, uh, the law, with blood, And without the shedding of blood, there is no remission, remission of sin. He's amplifying for us the role and the necessity of the sacrificial blood being utilized in order to consecrate all the things that were going to be used in the worship of God. And so if you could just picture it, this place, what he's saying in verses 18 through 20 and down into 22, the, the chamber of the priest where he did all of his work, It was a bloody, smelly, stinking mess. There was blood everywhere. Absolutely everything that was going to be used in order to lift it up to worship to God had to be covered with blood. Why? We're going to learn that in a moment. But the point that we want to see here at this point in the juncture is that he's saying, that's what makes sense in verse 22, almost all things he's saying, Almost all, every, when you walk in, everything's covered with blood. Almost all things by the law, in as it was being used according to the law, sprinkling and covering it with blood, it seems almost everything was covered in the law, in the use of the blood. Everything. God didn't accept worship from anything unless it did not have the blood shed. Now in verses 23 and 24. His inspired argumentation, it shifts to further contrast the old, te- old covenant types and Christ as the substance and the embodiment of all that which these things pointed to. This is why in verse 23 he says, It was therefore necessary that the patterns or the copies of things in heaven should be purified with these. With what? Well, the blood, the scarlet wool the hyssop, the sprinkling. It was necessary for these things to be patterns or copies because in the wisdom of God, He was wanting the type to resemble the anti-type. In His wisdom, all throughout redemptive history, He's setting these patterns and these types so it's preparing the way for when the Messiah comes, people would be able to, ought to be able to, as, as A.J. was reading in the book of Romans today, ought to be been able to perceive and to hear and to understand the gospel and the coming of the Messiah. So it was necessary. Why, what, have you ever considered that? Why in the world was it necessary for God to do it this way with all of these sacrificial animals and the temple and the priest? And what the inspired writer is saying, he says all these things were necessary that these copies of these things in heaven would be copies and they would point the way to the true things that are in the heavens. It was necessary, therefore, that the patterns of things in the heavens should be purified with these. These were just but copies, but they still need to be purified with blood. It observes, or we observe, as John Guild does, that is on the account of God's divine appointment that these things should resemble 
what was necessary and required of the coming Messiah. And all of this blood that's being described in verses 22 and 23 were to signify three things, I think, chiefly. The seriousness, the seriousness of their guilt, the seriousness of God's justice and God's wrath, and also to open the way to the work that Isaiah describes in Isaiah 53 that the Messiah would come and do. He would come and He would be bruised for our iniquities. This is what the writer is saying. All of these things were typifying and why they were necessary. So in that sense, understanding the plan of God and the sacrificial work of Jesus, we can come and we can understand why he says, and he's concluding in this argument, and that's what he's doing is building a case. We can understand why those things and all the blood was necessary. It makes sense to us. But notice what he says in in, uh, verse 23. He says, It was therefore necessary that the patterns of the copies of things in the heavens, which the ceremonial law was, should be purified with these, the blood of bulls and goats. But now notice, there's a semicolon. He's changing his thought. But in the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. Well, what does he mean by this? What does he mean by this? I think the simplest way of understanding this last part of verse 23 is to just simply follow the train of the logic which the writer is using in employing the role and the use of blood in the purification of the old temple ceremonial worship. Follow with me here. Verses 18 and 20. Blood was necessary to dedicate and confirm the Mosaic covenant, right? Verses 21 and 22. Blood was shed according to its rightful application under the old covenant law to prepare the earthly temple in Jerusalem to be utilized by sinners to offer acceptable worship unto God. And so then therefore, in verse 23, similarly, however, in a much more powerful and a much more significant way, the blood sacrifice of Jesus perfectly prepares the heavenly temple to be utilized by the elect to give unto God praise, honor, and worship. It's not to be understood that the heavenly temple, in verse 23 being described, is in itself somehow needing purification because we know it's impossible for anything that's impure to be in the presence of God. What's being done here, and what I think we can honestly conclude, is that what's being meant in the latter half of verse 23 and it's powerful if you catch it, is that the actual physical blood and ransom of Christ, that better sacrifice, was required in order to purify, to prepare and consecrate and set apart that spiritual place identified here as the heavenly sanctuary where all of the called ones, all the inhabited souls can come into Christ's true church in the heavenlies And they can worship Him. In other words, going back to what we learned in verse 15 for those who are with us, if Christ's blood was not shed, the heavenly sanctuary was not yet consecrated, not because it was impure, but because God requires and He demands the blood of His Son in order that those who have been called can enter into that temple in order on the last day to give Him all of the praise, honor, and the glory. That's what the writer is trying to get us to see. He's trying to see that His blood is the gateway. It's the heaven gate. It's the only gate that the whole entire plan depended upon. The covenant, the testament, your uh, make your justification, your sanctification, your uh, uh, guarantee to get into heaven. Your, it all depends on the obedience of this high priestly work of Jesus Christ. He's trying to, from verse 1 in chapter 9 to verse 14 in chapter 10, help them to see in this paradigm shift It all is dependent upon the blood sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. And these concepts that he's unpacking, they help us to get a better perspective of this place where we're going to be at for eternity, worshiping Christ. Think for a moment, friends. Think with me for a moment in our sanctified imaginations that God creates the heavenly abode. 
so that there is a place where our souls can go because of the blood of Jesus to give Him praise and to give Him honor and to give Him glory. Yes, we go to the book of Revelation and we see that part of this inheritance is there is no more tears. Yes, we go there and we see there is no more pain. Yes, we see part of this eternal inheritance is a blessed rest. But don't ever forget, heaven is not about you. Heaven is not about me. It is about the glory and the worship of Christ who is the one who is the high priest who shed His blood upon the cross. And when you come into these trenches of chapter 9 and you see these little gems, you think, oh, Jesus, You are worthy of all of my praise. You are worthy of all of my worship. I think that this interpretation from 18 down to 23 harmonizes nicely what we see in verse 24. Look at verse 24. Christ has not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are the figures of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. We get the picture. He shed His blood. Heaven was created for this event. For this event. For after He had consecrated this heavenly abode, giving and granting it its created purpose for the elect called ones in verse 15, before the cross, us, after the cross, upon our death, immediately in the presence of Him in this place, He comes triumphantly and He appears before God, the Father. It has been done. Now this heavenly sanctuary is put in order. And as we learn in verse 15, I strongly believe all of those in Abraham's bosom came with him as he led the captivity captive and led them free. And they had a good old-fashioned worship service of the Lord Jesus Christ in glory. That's what's going on here. That's what's going on. And notice, very importantly, for who we are today, still down here, while Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all of those who are in Abraham's bosom are there, Notice what we see in verse 21. Be, com- be comforted, beloved. What is he do? Is he there? He's appearing in the presence of God for us. For us. Well, what is Jesus doing for us there? What is Jesus right now doing in the presence of God for us? This is for us down here. This is for the church remaining who he prayed for in John 17. I'm going away, Father, to come back to be with you. Hebrews 9, 18 down to 24. I'm coming back to be with you in the presence of you. I'm going to appear before your presence again. Bring me back to my glory. Oh, but these I'm leaving in the world. Be with them. Well, that's what he's doing. How do I know that? He's already told us that in Hebrews 7.25. Hebrews 7.25. Therefore, he, Jesus, this high priest, is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him, through his blood, since he always lives to make intercession for them. This verse in 7.25, and others like it, they teach us that although Jesus' blood cross work secured our salvation of all of those who are called, and it was completed, it was made finished upon the cross, we see that He never stops interceding for us until we get there. Until we arrive in His presence with all the Old Testament saints in this heavenly sanctuary that wasn't built by hands and was consecrated by His own blood, granting you and I the membership in it. Jesus, in other words, He didn't go to heaven after His earthly ministry in the presence of the Father to take some sort of needed rest or break, brothers and sisters. No. Jesus is there in the heavenly temple appearing before the presence of the Father interceding for you and I. Ah, but the Scriptures teach us something else. In a mysterious and in a spiritual way, there is also someone else who is there. His name sometimes is referred to as the old dragon. Sometimes his name is referred to as Lucifer. But one name he goes by is Satan. His name means the adversary and the accuser. 
And while Satan we know is accusing us in this mysterious spiritual way, pointing out our sins, pointing out our weaknesses, pointing out most definitely our failures, just as he did with our great ancestor in the faith, Job, all of his accusations, listen to me, because Jesus is there with his blood being shed, he, all of his, Satan's accusations fall on deaf ears. There's not one witness in heaven that's interested in the witness and the testimony of Satan, friends. Because Jesus' work on the cross paid our sin debt in full. And as we're learning here in verse 24 and from chapter 7, verse 25, Jesus is about the business of looking Satan straight in the face, if you would allow me this illustration, and saying, so what? I paid it all. He, she, they are mine because I purchased them. You're barking up the wrong tree here, friend. They belong to me. They're hoping in me. They're trusting in me. And when they get here and their eyes are open to everything more informed, that little seed of faith that I've given them that's helped them persevere unto the end, oh, Satan, wait till you see how they worship and they glorify me. Sure, yeah, you can say what you want about them. But those are my heirs. And they will get what I have purchased for them. As we learn in chapter 8, 10 through 13, part of what is meant means belonging to Christ um, and having ownership in this covenant of grace is that we are His children and made perfect by His righteousness. When Jesus died on the cross, friends, His righteousness, His perfect holiness was imputed unto His church. That's why Jesus, in verse 15, is called the mediator. And He's the only mediator of this blessed covenant. No one else. We've said this before. It's not Mary. And this has huge theological implications. It's not a priest. It's not a pope. It's Jesus because He's the one who's crucified. He's the one that shed His blood. He's the one who's the mediator. He's the one I go to in my time of need. Moving forward in conclusion. Verses 25 through 28. The author now wants us to see that this sacrifice was perfected. It was a perfect and completed sacrifice never to be repeated again. Look at verse 25. Nor yet that he should offer himself often as the high priest enters into the holy place every year with the blood of others. Well, why doesn't Jesus offer himself often as the high priest entered into the work that they did every year? Well, the answer is because his sacrifice was perfect in which God's justice was completely satisfied. The law entirely fulfilled in his righteous, perfect life. In His sacrifice, sin was done away with. That's what He's been teaching all throughout this letter. There upon the cross and through His blood, complete salvation was obtained for His people. It was immediately granted to them at once. No delay. They will have it. It's guaranteed. He's the testator. He wrote His will with blood. It could not be changed. Verse 26, For then must the Son have often... Here's why too, he says. For then must He often have suffered since the foundation of the world. Why? Because there's been sin since the beginning of the world. He would have had to, all those called in verse 15, if His logic is going to work out consistent in verse 15, He would have had to been dying over and over again since the foundation of the world. That's what he's drawn out, the obvious observation. Then must he often have suffered since the foundation of the world? Sin has been around since the dawn of time. However, look also at the latter half of 26. The text teaches us that Christ appeared. It says he appeared. What's it talking about there? It's talking about his incarnation. And he sacrificially offered up himself one time. And notice when he did it at the end of this world. What does this end of the world phrase mean, friends? Well, the phrase means simply, well, we know it can't be taken literal because you and I wouldn't be here right now, right? About 2,000 years ago this happened. It's to be understood in the same way the writer used the phrase back in Hebrews 1-2 when he said, in these last days, God has spoken to us by His Son. It means this last age or this period of time that Jesus is appearing, His incarnation, and 
his second coming, which he's about to mention in verse 28. And so he came, he appeared in this last chapter of human history for this purpose, to consecrate the heavenly sanctuary and to allow you and I, being covered by his blood, to participate and be entered into that heavenly rest and that final worship of God. Now he concludes in verses 27 and the first half of 28, he includes by affirming his once for all sacrifice. This is appointed unto men once to die, but after this the judgment. A lot of people want to take this and build a case, you know, just the finality of death. And that's certainly true, but don't miss the theme of the argument here. What he's doing is he's saying, just as it's appointed as you as a man to die one time, and then the judgment, you've got to reckon with God. So Jesus died one time. He's not dying over and over again. There was an early error in church history. The Socinians, they believe that Jesus is in heaven right now. Uh, they tried to theologically construct that Jesus is there right now offering blood sacrifices in heaven. Ridiculous. And then there is, of course, as John Gill likes to describe them, the papist who every mass are offering up Jesus' sacrifice again. No, it cannot, it does not line up with the witness and especially the importance of the qualifying work of Jesus one time dying. He does not have to perpetually die over and over again. That's the point here in 27 in the first half of 28. So Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many and unto them that look to Him. Look at the last part here and this is the concluding thought. And unto them that look for Him shall He appear the second time. He appeared the first time we see in uh, verse, uh, where, where was it at? Verse 26. 24, sorry. He appeared the first... No, I'm lost here. 26, sorry, I got my bearings. Go off. First time he appears to put away sin is incarnation. But notice the second time he's going to appear in verse 26. He appears the second time without sin unto salvation. Without sin unto salvation. And here is the concluding thought we want to end today's message on as we're focusing on this once shed blood of Christ. This is the encouragement we walk away with in His second coming. He's coming without sin unto salvation. Well, of course, Jesus doesn't have sin. We know it's not meaning that. What does this mean? Well, it means the total completion or consummation of our salvation. We've looked at this before. I can't remember all who was here, but consider your salvation in a biblical sense in its threefold way. There's the salvation from the penalty of sin. That's done upon your justification. Jesus frees you from the condemnation and the penalty of sin. Judicially, legally, you're forgiven. And then in this life, before He comes, there is a progressive freeing you and delivering you not only from the penalty of sin, but your salvation encompasses the delivering and the continual growing from the power of sin. In other words, there should be a progression in your life from the power of sin. But what's being referred here in verse 28, this returning without sin unto salvation, it is, friends, the total deliverance and freedom from the presence of sin. From the presence of sin. On this side of glory, we shall never be completely div- delivered from the presence of sin. And that's why Paul writes in Philippians 3.20 20 and 21, he recognizes our citizenship is in heaven. We are heirs of Christ, from whence also we look for the Savior, he says, the Lord Jesus Christ, oh, who shall change our vile body. It was always interesting to me how Paul described himself as a Christian. You know, over Romans 7, do we remember how Paul... Oh, who's going to deliver me from this wretched body, this, this wretched man that I am? Who's going to deliver me from this body of death? You see, there is in all of us as heirs going through the sufferings that we have, knowing we're purchased by Christ, knowing we're free from the penalty of sin, knowing that we're not condemned under, under, under our sins. And we are fumbling, yes, at times more than others through this Christian walk while we're suffering under these afflictions of temptations, failures, etc., etc. All of us in here are anticipating catch what he's doing here like the Old Testament saints were 
in verse 15, anticipating that blood to be shed and that final emancipation to where they could come into the heavenly realm and worship God face to face. We as well, as we sojourn, as pilgrims on this earth, we're waiting for the second return, are we not? We're waiting for Him to come without sin in the last days to finally emancipate us as purchased people. This final liberation from the corruptions of sin is what the Apostle Paul also had in mind when he wrote in a prayer for the church in 1 Thessalonians 5.23. He said, May the very God of peace sanctify you wholly, meaning completely. I pray God your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless unto or at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ being referred to in verse 28. You see, Paul understood as he longed for it, you would long for this. Then he prayed, O God, I pray that you would preserve and that you would complete them wholly, that they would be sanctified. We have thus, I think, shown that our salvation understood being referred to here in verse 28 is the final chapter. It's the final consummation of this wonderful inheritance that Christ's blood has made possible. It's not until the second coming of Christ that the purpose of all of our predestination that we learn about in Ephesians, the calling in verse 15 of this chapter, will fully be realized. For it's not until then that we will be, according to Romans 8.30, glorified with Him forever. And so, coming to a conclusion, if our salvation as the inspired writer of Hebrews so laboriously laying out for us, is entirely dependent upon the grace of Jesus and His blood work upon the cross. If He truly is our Savior, our Savior, not only from the penalty of sin, not only from the power of sin, but also someday from the very presence of sin, how is it that we could fail ever to trust and believe that He will accomplish His Word as the testator? Salvation, the writer of Hebrews is making explicitly clear as he's trying to get these people to be untangled from their old Judaistic, old covenant ways. He is wanting them to see it is not partly of grace and partly of your works. Because if it were, they would have some grounds for boasting. And Christ will not be robbed the least bit of His glory. Once, friends, we see that the time of our Lord's second coming is that final time where our salvation is consummated. And once we just be at rest and at peace that all of our salvation is by grace through faith and not of works, then it will be clear that it cannot in any wise be determined by our own personal worthiness such a conclusion Do you not agree as we approach the Lord's Supper? Gives Jesus Christ all the glory and the honor which He deserves. So why do we have to talk so much about the blood? Why do the hymn writers write Rock of Ages and nothing but the blood and all these songs about the blood? Because it reminds you of what you cannot do and what Jesus has done. And it's supposed to. It's supposed to. When the gospel truly takes root and it's truly preached and truly accepted, create within you a heart and a disposition of humbleness. Whereas Ephraim, we read this morning, bows his head and says, Oh, what a foolish young bullock I was. What a, what a foolish young bullock I was to spurn the love of God who has loved me and has given me His only begotten Son. Amen. Friends, that's what it does. Salvation by faith alone, through Christ alone, His blood alone, it doesn't produce pride, haughtiness, the quote-unquote chosen frozen (laughs) cliche. It produces a church who's humble and continually looking to Christ as their high priest, and the only reason that they will receive any inheritance and glory. May He continue to do that work in our hearts. Let us pray.
Our Heavenly Father, we bow once again, O God, in light of the truth of Your revealed Word this morning, as it pertains to our High Priest and the sacrificial work which He performed upon Calvary through the shedding of His blood, and we are once again humbled. We pray that You, O Spirit of God, would foster within us a greater Uh, debt of gratitude. Oh, may our hearts be full, Lord, of humbleness as we remember what Jesus has done. Let us never be tempted to ever doubt the finished work of Jesus. Help us to remember that you are there, O Christ, in the presence of the Father now in this heavenly sanctuary interceding for us, even while the accuser is accusing Help us to grow. Give us grace, O Christ, to follow your example. We confess, oh, how we have sinned against you. But we also confess we believe the truth of your gospel. That your sins, they cover, they cleanse. Sin may be in us, but it is not on us. And we pray that you would help us. Oh, pray, we we ask, oh, we pray that you would help us to grow. Help us to follow you more. We bless you and we thank you in all things. In Jesus' name we pray and ask. Amen.